Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. Hi, Bill Kelly. Well, according to the finding of a residential survey conducted by I-Elect Hamilton, residents are furious about housing affordability and the city's leadership. Graham Crawford, a spokesperson for I-Elect, joins us to talk about that. Ontario planning to establish a housing affordability task force as both prices and the number of home sales have grown exponentially in the last year. Could a task force make a difference or is it meaningless? And some Conservative MPs have organized a so-called mini-caucus around the issue of vaccine mandates, dubbing their group the Civil Liberties Caucus. Are anti-vaxxers and Aaron O'Toole's stance on vaccination coming back to haunt him? It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are uh, not too far away from the next uh, municipal election. That's, by the way, every municipality in Ontario will be uh, electing new councils next year. And uh, in anticipation of that, uh, a group in Hamilton uh, have been proactive about this uh, and, and have done a great deal of work uh, since actually May, uh, when they pretty much uh, got together and, and uh, decided that they were going to do something about uh, the next election and to try to inform people about this. It's called I Elect Hamilton. I'm sure you've seen some of uh, their comments on social media over the last little while, and we've talked about it on the program here. Uh, their first report, a rather in-depth report, has now been released. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Graham Crawford. Graham is a spokesperson for I Elect Hamilton. Uh, Graham, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Bill, thanks for the invitation. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. We'll give an overview, and then we'll get into some of the specifics about this. First of all, as, as you read through the data and prepared the report, it's, uh, and I read it yesterday, all 62 pages of it, uh, it's, it's informative. What, what, what did you take from it? Well, I think the level of engagement was very high. 92% of the people who responded of the over 2,000 that did, and, and this is a 24-question survey, so it's fairly lengthy, uh, voted in the last election. So they're kind of engaged or committed at least uh, to, uh, you know, to voting at a minimum. Uh, I think the two things that I took from it, Bill, are one is we have a crisis of leadership. People are very, very dissatisfied with the quality of leadership across the board, and, and I will say through, across all wards as well. So we don't have just hot spots. This is uh, consistent across wards. That was probably the most surprising, I think. The other thing, though, Bill, is that they're more satisfied or most satisfied, relatively speaking, with the hard stuff, uh, the roads, parks, uh, sidewalks. Uh, people feel a lot better about that than they do about the quality of leadership. Um, that's kind of telling. It's the stuff what, we spend what does money it tell on. That what, 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 what is the message there, Graham? Well, I think the message is that uh, the money we spend money on, or the, the things we spend money on, rather, um, people are okay with. Uh, they say that they feel safe in their neighborhoods, walking in their neighborhoods, the quality and condition of their parks, the condition of roads and sidewalks. Uh, relatively speaking, 70, around 70% of people are satisfied with those things. On conversely, though, we start to get into 90-plus percent dissatisfaction with the quality of leadership, quality of decisions, uh, innovation, the extent to which uh, counselors or counsel in general listens to the needs and opinions uh, of others. And that's consistent. All of the leadership questions scored very, very poorly in terms of dissatisfaction. So, right, let's let's well, talk a little bit about that. Our way out I, of this, I guess, is the conclusion. You don't. Yeah. It doesn't require a billion dollars to have better leaders. 
No, and we'll we'll talk about that element, but but there's a, a something here that uh, that I extracted from when I saw, especially the stat you just talked about here, uh, that there's overwhelming support and satisfaction uh, with, as you say, sidewalks, neighborhood issues, uh, you know, the parks nearby, the safety within uh, those neighborhoods, uh, and I I'll tell you what I took from that. It, that explains to me, in part anyway, why so many of the incumbents get elected all the time and reelected all the time because people are generally. They're, they're content with what's going on in their immediate neighborhoods. Uh, and, and for many people, as you know, Graham, you've been involved in this for a long time, as I have. Uh, what's going on in the 10 blocks around where they live is usually what determines exactly how happy or unhappy they feel. And by and large, they're pretty content with that just right across the city. Uh, which tells me that anybody that thinks there's going to be some wholesale changes on council and everybody's going to get blown out, uh, don't hold your breath because this is one of the reasons why I think you see incumbents get reelected because they, for the most part, look after the bread and butter issues in neighborhoods. And and that, as, as you can see, results in a high level of satisfaction. They don't do a very good job on big picture envisioning. Uh, and, and But I'm not sure a lot of people even consider that as something in, in, on their everyday issues. Some people do, and I think a lot of the people who do responded to your survey, but there's a lot of people that just don't give it much attention. And, and I think that's going to be an obviously large hurdle for anybody that's get, trying to exact change in the next election. Well, there's no question, Bill. If, I mean, if you care, if the thing uh, that you care most about is uh, getting your blue box replaced uh, by your counselor who drives up and takes it out of his or her trunk, yeah, I guess that's true. What I will point out, though, is that the third highest rated statement uh, in terms of level of dissatisfaction, which was a 92% level of dissatisfaction, was the statement that said city council spends my tax dollars responsibly. So I, I take your point that if people are, they, they see the stuff in their neighborhood, their 10 block radius, and they're pretty content with that, but they don't like the tax bill they get every year. Um, and, I mean, who do you blame for that? Uh, or who do you hold accountable for that? I think you hold your leaders accountable for that. Oh, and absolutely. So that's what people, I think, are, are telling us uh, in no uncertain terms. Um, the, yep. the top six uh, statements of 23 statements had to do with leadership, and they're bad. Uh, this, this is, in, in our view, and we write this in our report, that this is basically a citywide performance review of council and its leadership by over 2,000 people. I also point out, Bill, that uh, over 1,000 of those respondents also provided written comments as well. And that's going to be part of the content of our second report, which will be a much more in-depth report that we're doing in conjunction with, in partnership with McMaster Research Shop. So they're going to do a deep dive because we have postal codes for every single respondent. So we can do this by neighborhood. But we've also, as I say, we've got over a thousand written comments as well, which uh, amplify, to say the least, uh, the numbers. When we do the breakdown here, though, and I'm just going by some of the numbers. I haven't done all the math on this. Uh, as you mentioned about the number of respondents, uh, most of them, from what I understand, uh, come from wards one, two, and three. In other words, the West End downtown and, and well, the Central downtown. Well, half, of them, uh, half of them do, yes. Sure. Well, yeah, and, and, and less than 7% in any of the other wards. Now, what does that tell me? That is, When you talk about level of engagement, in those three wards, clearly there's a high level of engagement and concern about a number of these issues. Uh, there's an argument to be made that in the rest of the city, not so much. Well, it's, it's certainly, you can't, I mean, the numbers are the numbers, and they are consistent across uh, the other uh, 12 wards. You're right. Wards 1, 2, and 3 received uh, 50% of the responses. 
um, and the others are spread evenly across the other wards. Uh, I think this is probably true, though, of, of most surveys in the, in the city. We use the same methodology, by the way, that the city of Hamilton uses for their surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you go online and you, you fill it in. This is exactly the same methodology that was used for the snow clearing. So, uh, you know, I, you're right. You have to take a look at it. What I would say, though, to every single counselor is because we have ward, a ward snapshot in the report that shows the results by ward, and we have uh, five comments, the representative comments taken directly from the thousand written comments. If I was a counselor, I'd look at my ward and say, what is this telling me that I, is either new to me or that I already knew, and what am I going to do differently? Um, I, unfortunately, I think some of them will probably simply dismiss the negative feedback, which is a kind of pattern of behavior that we see. Across oh, sure, it is. They don't like uh, to hear bad news. I mean, who does, in a sense? On the other hand, this is the job, so. And, and that's been an ongoing problem here. And I'm, I'm not disputing the fact that I think there's a leadership concern here and a leadership problem. I think a lot of people feel that way. Uh, but how, you know, I guess the question I'm asking here is, because I've seen this, this play before, uh, and it doesn't always play out. Uh, you know, when when people get to marks the, their, their ballots, as they will next year, how angry are they? Or do they simply say, look, it's the devil we know, so let's just hang on to what we've got. I, I'm, I'm interested, just as an observer, to just see how far this is going to go. And, and go back to your idea about the level of engagement. Uh, as you say, about 50% of these were from three of the wards. Uh, the other 50% were divided around the rest of the city. Uh, and I saw the comments from from some of those mountain wards and some of the outlying wards, too. And they're, they're pretty common about lack of leadership and about high taxes, uh, about a lack of affordable housing, which, by the way, is not just a Hamilton problem. It's, it's an inter- international problem, really. And I think people are aware of that. Uh, there's a general amount of, of angst, I think, that's going on right now. And what I find, and, and I think what's reflected on here, is nine times out of ten, people usually point to their local councillor uh, to solve all of these problems, even if they aren't technically a, a municipal problem. They're looking for solutions. And uh, one of the shortcomings, I think, and you and I have talked about this the number of times you've been on the program, is is the lack of visioning that comes from City Hall on many of these issues. Uh, you know, they, they, they seem to think that they're addressing the issue, but you don't see any long-term solutions in the visioning. And I think a couple of the issues that are before council right now, for instance, urban boundary, uh, a number, of, a couple of things that are going on, uh, including the budget issue, uh, I think are probably characteristic of what's going on here, where it seems to be short-term thinking. And I think people are getting a little tired of that. Well, they are, Bill. And in fact, it's one of the, uh, the top six uh, statements in terms of level of dissatisfaction is the statement that said city council brings new ideas forward to make Hamilton a better city. 89% of Respondents said they were dissatisfied with the quality uh, of leadership uh, at the council table. And I think you're absolutely right. And I do take your point that uh, housing affordability is, is an international issue. However, it won't get fixed internationally. It will get fixed locally. People are suffering locally. And if you, if you think back, what's the, what are the two best ideas you've heard come out of the council table around ideas to address affordable housing in Hamilton? And the answer is, Bill, I, I'd, be, I'd be, have to go and have lunch waiting for you to think what those two are because they don't have any. So this is the problem that people are saying. Yes, these issues are big. They're complex. We can agree. However, you have to chip away at them locally. We have some people who seem to have figured it out, Indwell, Kiwanis Homes. They're actually doing stuff. You can point to it. You can literally walk in buildings they've built. If you take the city of Hamilton and city housing Hamilton, you can't do the same thing because they haven't built anything. 
So we're not addressing the problem, and I think people are seeing that. And that is there's an overwhelming significance, I think, to the level of dissatisfaction in this survey. Uh, by the way, we're keeping the survey open because the McMaster uh, research won't begin until January, the in-depth dive. So we're keeping the survey. It's available online at ielecthamilton.ca, and people can continue to fill it in so that we have even more data going forward. So, Bill, I, I'd love to believe that, you know, people are in the surrounding wards are going to leap on their computers and start filling this in in huge, huge numbers. But I hope some of them do, at least. In other words, if you have a, an opinion about this and you'd like to check in and see uh, how you feel about the survey statements, please do that. It's wide open. It will stay open uh, for a number, well, certainly for the, the rest of this year. Yeah, and we'll, we'll give the, the email address of where they can log on in just a couple of seconds as we finish our conversation here. Uh, are you concerned about the, the level of engagement, though? I, I, you know, we talked about some people uh, in Wards 1, 2, and 3 seem to be. And, and, and by the way, that didn't surprise me in the least because I know historically, especially in the last 20 or 25 years, uh, there seems to be a lot more civic engagement. A lot of the issues that, that I think are, are germane to what's going on in Hamilton uh, are directly relatable to those three wards. Uh, LRT comes to mind. You know, people in Ward 7 and 8 up in the mountain, maybe not so much engaged in it, although I'm sure they have an opinion on it, as the people where the line's actually going to go through, uh, and a number of other key issues about intensification, downtown redevelopment, et cetera. So I'd be surprised if that wasn't where the highest level of engagement was. Uh, so so that's that's one element to this whole thing. Uh, yet I also find it's interesting that uh, two of the three counselors in those two wards seem to be the ones with the highest approval ratings from the people that responded too. So the, is there a mixed message there that we don't like what's going on, we don't like the visioning, but we kind of like our counselor? Well, it's indeed true. I and mean, this is why I think reading, which I've done, I've read all you know, nearly 1,100 written comments. Uh, it's important to, to balance those things. Yes, I mean, those counselors in wards one and three, uh, so Wilson and uh, Nan, uh, had, generally speaking, very favorable written comments about them, whereas mm -hmm. others did not. Um, in terms of level of engagement, Bill, I think it is probably the fundamental issue. As you know, and you've talked about this many, many times on your show, is our voter turnout at the municipal level is terrible. Yep. Uh, it's in the 30% range. Um, I elect Hamilton can't fix that, but we might be able to help it. And that's one of our goals, is to provide more information to people so they become more engaged and better informed when people come to the door, so that for those who do decide to go and cast their votes, they cast knowledgeable votes, not just uh, based, votes based on familiar, familiarity of an incumbent. Well, and well, Graham, you talked about that back in May when you first came on the program and talked about this whole enterprise. I did. Uh, and the fact that we have about 30, 31% voter turnout for municipal elections is, is embarrassing. It's it's a little higher in some municipalities, but nowhere near what it should be. And I know that one of your stated goals was to how to increase that number. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, when you look at some of the stats here, for instance, you had like 90% of, of the people that responded uh, said that they voted. Uh, well, that's that's a majority of a minority then. It's 90% of the 30% that voted uh, have expressed opinions on this. Uh, the goal here, and I know it's still your goal, and, and hopefully your, your desire that it's going to happen, is to reach out to that other 70% that just don't seem to be engaged in this and try to get them engaged, uh, which is a monumental task. And I, I don't know that you've, you've tapped into that yet. I guess we won't know for an, uh, the next little while until we see exactly what kind of response we're getting from other parts of the city. Well, yeah, and of course, bear in mind, Bill, that this, this survey is, is one part of what I elect Hamilton is doing. It's one part of our work. There's still a year between today and the next election. We just passed the, the anniversary, actually. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so there's plenty of work that we still have, have yet to do and plans we have built and work we're going to be doing. So it's not over because we've done the survey, but the survey is a data point. Uh, it's an important part of our foundation, I think, and getting that word out to people. On the other hand, I mean, your point is well taken. 90% of the people who filled in this survey uh, said they voted. And if this is representative of the people who did vote last time, then it's a significant piece of feedback. Uh, but I take your point. You know, when we've got 70, nearly 70% of Hamiltonians who didn't vote in the municipal election, and all decisions are, are local, as you know, and many issues are local, uh, this is the way it should be the opposite. We should be, you know, maybe it's the federal vote that should be, be lower. I mean, we'd like them all to be high. But the fact that the municipal vote is the lowest of all three levels is crazy. Well, and I've been bothered by that since, since day one, because as we've talked about, it's municipal government that has the most direct impact on people's uh, communities and, and people's lives, uh, which is why, by the way, I was interested to see uh, the level of satisfaction about neighborhood issues. And it's not just picking up blue boxes. It's it's community safety. It's, to you know, my kids have a green space where they can go and throw a ball around. Uh, do I feel safe walking from here to the store, you know, at, at eight o'clock at night? Those are important issues to people because they're lifestyle and quality of life issues. Uh, and, and it's good to know that those, you know, they, there seem to be a positive response there. Uh, I wish that people were more engaged in some of the the, the long term issues like economic development uh, and and visioning like that. I, I I wish we could find a way to do that, but uh, I I'm going to throw a little bit of that back to City Hall and said, well, it's it's really up to those elected officials to engage the citizens in that, and I don't think Council or City Hall does a very good job of that. Well, Bill, not only do they not do a good job when they do actually seek uh, uh, opinions of, through surveys. Um, they dismiss the results if they're not the ones they like, which I suspect they'll do with this. Or they don't do the survey in the first place. Or, or they don't do the survey in the first place. But even when they do do the survey, the mayor said in a number of times on a couple of surveys that, well, the numbers, uh, you know, he's going to read them, but he's not going to do anything with that because uh, it's not really representative. Well, I guess you can keep saying that, and, and uh, for those counselors who look at this report and say, nah, I don't believe it, I don't think these results are representative, then fine. That's your choice. You don't have to believe them. It's not what I expect from a good leader. I would expect a good leader to, to start doing some thinking and reflection. I would hope every one of them reflects on these results, and the results to come in the much more in-depth, uh, literally we'll be able to do neighborhood uh, level of detail, uh, uh, when the McMaster survey comes out, the the uh, the results that report um, it, to dismiss. I, I, I stuff, just got. I, I got to wrap it up. I got about ten seconds left. Go ahead. Yeah, please. I counsel. Please do not dismiss this report. Read it and reflect. Uh, as my uh, colleague Scott Riley wrote in the Spectator today, he says you know elected officials love to get public input unless they don't want to get it. <laughs> um, so, right. and, and that's a, an interesting dichotomy that seems to exist. Uh, quickly, uh, where can they go if they want to log on and, and be a part of this? Sure, please go to ielecthamilton.ca and you'll see a, a, a direct link to the report, and you can download it. It's a big file, so wait a minute, but uh, it's there. Okay. Graham Crawford, as always, Graham, thanks so much. Uh, first of many conversations we'll have on this. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get into the housing situation. As we talked about in the last hour, when we talked with Graham Crawford from I Elect Hamilton, uh, one of the questions they asked about was about affordable housing. Uh, and the question, I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it in front of me right now, but that they asked on that survey was it's easy to find affordable housing in Hamilton. Of course, the answer is no. I mean, that's going to elicit a negative response no matter what. 
uh, because it's not easy, not just in Hamilton, but not just in London, not just in Toronto. It's it's a, a problem that's that's reared its ugly head and has become exceptionally uh, problematic for an awful lot of people these days about affordability. And I know that when you use that phrase, affordable housing, uh, it, it's in the eye of the beholder and the, the mind of the beholder, I think, because sometimes they talk about well, affordable housing means yeah, people from low income. And that's certainly a factor. Sure it is. Uh, but people from just about every economic range right now are having problems finding accommodation. And there's a number of reasons for that. And we've discussed many of them on the program over the last little while. Uh, and the government is cognizant of this. I know the federal government talked about it during the, their election campaign a couple of months ago. And all three political parties had a plan uh, as to how effective it's going to be. Well, time will tell. I mean, that that really is, is something you really don't debate uh, at the campaign level because it's all talking about stuff that at the 50,000-foot level. When you bring it right down to ground and say, okay, now what's your plan? How much is it going to cost and where is it going to go? That's when you can get into the, some of the details about that. And we're not there yet. Uh, the provincial government has also weighed in on this, as they have municipal governments, because they all understand that there's going to be a problem. And in last week's economic statement uh, from the Ford government, uh, Finance Minister Peter Bethenfalvey uh, said that uh, one of the things that they were going to do, they made a commitment, uh, was for a uh, task force, a housing affordability task force, uh, to set up here uh, with uh, their appointees, and they were going to come back with some recommendations. Well, uh, a number of the people that have been studying this uh, file for the longest while said, do we really need this? Uh, don't we have some of these ideas in front of us? Joining us to talk about the whole concept is uh, Murtaza Hader. Uh, Professor Hazer is with the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. He's also a columnist for the Financial Post. Uh, some great uh, and very insightful uh, columns uh, about that in the last little while from uh, Professor Hader. Uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. I'll ask you the very question I was think, just reminiscing about just a couple of seconds ago, because this has been going on for quite some time right now. Uh, with with uh, Minister Bethan Falvey's comment yesterday, or last week rather, about a housing affordability task force, do we really need another task force? I mean, we've studied this thing to death. Don't we have some, of, if not most, of the answers right in front of us? Uh, I would say no, we don't have the obvious answers in front of us. And I know that we have been um, researching the problem for decades, um, but we somehow find a way um, to only tinker at the margins, um, you know, adding 100 houses here or 1,000 more home dwellings here. Um, and my concern is that when you have a shortfall of a few million homes, um, the kind of interventions that have been proposed in the past um, are inadequate. So if this task force is being established, I would hope that this would bring together people, men and women, who, who are able to understand the gravity of the issue and start with the, with the premise that whatever we have done in the past has not worked, which means that we have to unlearn the past to move forward on housing affordability. It has worsened. It has eroded uh, for many. It has improved in ways as well, but it has made lives difficult for many. And the goal should be to recognize and realize that what we have done in the past hasn't worked. So why not we unlearn from the past and start afresh to make a big difference and focus on the supply side of the equation that we somehow find a way to ignore every time. So it's a classic example, I guess, of that old cliche that, uh, you know, going at a problem, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is, is frivolous. But is, is that what we've been doing for the last number of years? I think so. I think this is what we have done successfully over the past several decades is that we have um, uh, proposed the same um, um, 
useful but very limited in scope solutions and hope that this would change. Look, the the, the main source brought about by a growing economy, by a growing population, by growing incomes, um, people don't recognize, but their incomes have grown over the last five decades. And also, uh, the on top of it, l- ultra-low interest rates, which means ultra-low mortgage rates, improve the ability of people to get even bigger loans. Um, and, and, and the demand is increasing because, of, because the population is increasing. But if you look at the supply of housing over the years, the construction of housing, um, the rate of construction, if you were to compare, and I'll give you some numbers, in the 70s, early 70s, Canada was building 10 to 12,000 new homes per million people. That was early 70s. Now we are building five to 6,000 new homes per million people. So our rate of construction over the past five decades have almost halved, and, and then we act surprised when pricing prices continue to rise the way they have been rising over the last few decades. So... Um, a task force of, of people um, that recognize that supply is the problem and supply is the solution to this crisis would be helpful. But if you end up with supply skeptics, people who believe that you know we need to tax more or we think that we are in a housing crunch because of people living abroad or on the Mars, would not be able to make a meaningful difference, as has been the case of these similar commissions and task forces that emerged over the last few decades. Why are they dancing around that issue, though, Professor? This is what I, I find mind-boggling, uh, you know, because we've heard governments, uh, federal governments and, and provincial governments, for that matter, that have, have as you said, they've, they've tried to be strategic about this and they blame foreign investment. Uh, they blame, you know, irresponsible speculators that are buying up all sorts of properties uh, and that's driving the price up. And, and there may be elements of that. I'm sure there are but they don't seem to want to tackle the issue of, of supply. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the, the, there are some very good uh, steps, meaningful steps being taken. Like, for example, Toronto is studying vacancy tax. Um, it's a good step, not going to make a much bigger difference, that's for sure, but it's a step in the right direction. But if what if we were to focus our energies on, on steps that would make a meaningful difference, not a small difference, not that we, we say that we implemented this and look, 500 more homes became available, uh, that, not that kind of solution. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we have not been able to make a meaningful difference is the way land use is is sort of, uh, the land use planning is in the hands of three tiers of government, more so between province and the city. And to some extent, the federal government, but that has, a, they have a limited role. So this, this uh, uh, distribution of land use planning mandates mean that no one government can actually drive through um, a, a supply agenda. It's then you end up negotiating. The federal government comes in and says, well, we can give you um, favorable loans at favorable terms to encourage the builders and developers to build. Um, they may even come up with land saying, look, federal lands could be made available. Uh, but then uh, provinces have in the middle, they come up and say, well, no, you can't build here because we have declared this area a heritage area or environmentally sensitive land, um, and that's that's something that I'm not advocating against. We should never ever um, uh, build in a way that uh, that compromises the environmental integrity of our of our urban built space or the areas around it. But then the municipalities come in, and then municipalities have full control over uh, almost complete control over land use planning within the city, and then they are influenced by our neighbors. You, you, my, you and I are neighbors. 
and we are the NIMBYs who would reject any densification in our neighborhoods. So the, the, the land use planning control is so um, atomized or so di- distributed over different uh, tiers of governments, and then you have other non, um, uh, non-active stakeholders. These are community groups who would resist densification in their, in their backyards. You put all of this together, and you end up in a gridlock. And I think this task force should come up with one, ma- one, one task, and that is to simplify land use planning so that if someone wants to build something, um, and, and if they have a proposal to build 5,000 or 4,000 new homes, that that proposal is, is resolved in a matter of months, not in a matter of years. I'm not saying that you rubber stamp every application for development. I say whatever due diligence is required has to be done within months, if not weeks, so that we can move forward. Right now, by the time we get approvals from an idea to inception, it takes years to get things done. And that needs to be taken care of. And I think that should be a big focus of this task force to realize that supply has to be facilitated and that land use planning mandates have to be brought into one roof. You raise a very interesting and I think a very germane point here, Professor. I, I think I mentioned one of our previous discussions. I spent about 10 years on uh, City Council here in Hamilton some years ago, uh, and, uh, always on the planning committee. And, and just about every infill development that came before uh, the committee and, and the, uh, the public meeting was, was in some way, shape or form, uh, something that the, the neighborhood got upset about and, and they would protest and they would push back on it. You know, if it was an old school property that was surplus and the city would say, okay, uh, we're going to build some houses on here. Well, we don't like those kind of houses. We don't want that. We want that. You know, we don't like them. They're too close together. They're not like the rest of the houses. And, and of Absolutely. course, there are avenues for them to fight back. They could go back to the old days, the old Ontario Municipal Board. And you're right. I mean, uh, what would look like a very simple application would take years. And it's no wonder that people rust, they get frustrated and say, you know what, to hell with it. We're not even going to bother. So, so there's a, this cognitive dissonance, if you ask me. You know, people, um, mature adults, individuals with young millennial children, um, they, they would say that we are so concerned that our kids would never be able to afford a home. So that's a big concern. And then when you ask them, should we densify or should we, would we be able to densify in your own neighborhood and said, not in my backyard? So people yeah. who, who even would themselves recognize that affordability is a big problem for their own children would end up resisting any densification because whatever is being proposed is not in line with their imagination of or how they have imagined their neighborhood to be. So in Toronto, for instance, uh, people objected to a daycare saying there would be too much traffic. I mean, this is quite interesting. So this happens, to, and I'm not blaming anyone. I think I would be one of those members if something is proposed in my neighborhood. And therefore, to prevent me from harming my future generation, I think the stake, this, this task force should come up with a way that people, that this interference with land use intensification, especially in brownfield development. And brownfield development is where we have already paved over. That is, we are not converting green fields and we are not contributing to sprawl. I think brownfield densification um, should be under one roof where province and the city um, act together and, 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 the, and the skeptics, supply skeptics, are checked so that they can do not continue to choke the supply of housing as we have been able to do so successfully in the last five decades. 
Supply is one issue here, and, and a very important one, as you've written a number of times, Professor. What about what about variety, though? I mean, you know, people that are in the market for houses. I mean, you know, there are people that just say, "I just want a roof over my head." I get that, but uh, you know, do you build condos? Do you build townhouses? I mean, an awful lot of people that I've talked to, especially that are saying, "You know, I want my children to be able to afford a house," they're talking about a single-family residential property, hopefully with a backyard and that sort of thing. Uh, that takes space, that takes room, uh, and that takes planning. It's, it's, it's much more difficult to try to make that accommodation sometimes. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And this is a serious issue. Um, for example, in Toronto, um, the bulk of supply has been condominiums over the last mm-hmm. 10, 10 years or so. Um, and then um, the condominium supply has kept pace, uh, but low-rise housing hasn't. So you see this divergence between the rapid escalation of housing prices for low-rise housing, because the supply was constrained, and not as much for condominiums, where we built um, sufficient amount of, uh, I would say, if not sufficient, near sufficient amount of uh, high-rise housing. So you're absolutely right. When you have 80% or more, um, or maybe 70% or more of your housing in one type and not the other, um, then you would have dis- different rates of uh, price, in, uh, price acceleration, um, m- more so in low-rise and less so in high-rises. So it is, um, again, um, a function of demographics. You look at the demographics today, you look at the demand for housing that will be generated um, by cohorts in the next 10, 15 years. And if the millennials are, and then the millennials are now getting older, they are now have started to have their second child. Um, some have already got their first child. So they are now getting into their, their phases where they will be looking for homes. They would not be able to fit in a one-bedroom apartment with a, with a couple and two children. And that would increase uh, at a rapid rate and demographic demand from the millennials for family-oriented housing will continue to increase from 2020, which is be already there, to 2030, where it's kind of start to peak. So we have to be ready uh, to be built uh, to provide enough family-oriented affordable housing because, um, let's face it, these millennials would not have deep pockets and they may not have the equity to pour over from one dwelling to another, and they still would need this housing. So so from an affordability point of view, you have to think about it. And also, I think we, we may want to start thinking about why not there, should, why not there be a market for rental housing um, um, in, in low-rise housing domain. Like we know that the bulk, overwhelming majority of rental units are high-rise units or multifamily construction. But if... if if the millennials are increasing in size and would be looking for family-oriented low-rise housing, should there be not a market for rental housing that's not necessarily high-rises or apartments? So there are solutions out there, and this task force has task for has to be imaginative enough and bold enough to do and think things that they have not thought before. Well, as always, the devil will be in the details, which means uh, there are many more discussions to be had on this as uh, this uh, task force moves forward. Uh, always a pleasure, Professor, to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you kindly. Bye now. Take care. Professor Murtaza Hader from uh, the University of, of Ryerson University and also, the, of course, the Ted Rogers School of Management. He's written extensively about this, and uh, we've talked about some of those columns in the, in the Financial Post in the past. Uh, don't come back with the same ideas time and time and time again. It's time for some creative thinking. They're thinking outside the box, so to speak. And we're certainly going to be looking for that from this government. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the trials and tribulations of, uh, of Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party. 
Uh, it's uh, been an ongoing problem since the election. Uh, I, the Julius Caesar et tu Brute thing seems to come to mind uh, because there seem to be some people within the party that weren't very happy with Mr. O'Toole's leadership. And uh, as a matter of fact, the Conservative Party is pushing a member of its National Council to turn over emails and phone records related to this individual's petition to force Aaron O'Toole into an early leadership review. We're talking about one Bert Chen, uh, who has uh, been pushing for this actually since the day after the election uh, and causing some ruffles within the, the Conservative Party. Add to that, of course, the, the concerns about the anti-vaxxers and some of the comments from Marilyn Glado uh, over the weekend on uh, Evan Solomon's program on CTV. And uh, you've got a leader who's, uh, well, trying to, cause, I guess, people to move forward and try to move forward in situations like this. Uh, others are suggesting there's a great deal of insurrection in the ranks. So what's happening and what's the upshoot of this? Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Brander to talk about this. Andrew, of course, is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies, also a former director of communications for the Ontario government. Andrew, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Good morning, Bill. Great to be back. When you win elections, everybody loves you. Uh, and when it doesn't right. go well, nobody nobody likes to lose, Andrew. Uh, but right. boy, it just seems as if everything doesn't get it doesn't get it doesn't hit the fan. It seems to hit the leader, and Mr. O'Toole seems to be the target right now. Yeah, it's um, you know what's interesting about it is uh, in in the early days of the uh, of the campaign, the the reason why I. I Took a short hiatus from uh, from doing uh, these types of activities as uh, I was I was helping a little bit um, with uh, with coordinating um, some of the some of the pundits uh, during uh, during the last federal election. Um, so uh, you know I, I spent more time talking to our talking heads than uh, than our our friends in the media. Um, but uh, but I will say in the you know in the in the first three weeks of the campaign, um, you know, my God, there were a ton of people that were putting up their hands saying, you know, we're here to help. Uh, we're the glue that keeps uh, keeps the team together. This is not not only just just pundits, but uh, but you know, members of caucus um, and and other individuals. And and to your point, um, you know, when when things are going well and. And things uh, and things look very hopeful and optimistic. Everyone's uh, everyone's a, a bit more of a team player, and and uh, you know I I'd, I'd say um, to uh, to all the members in the in the Conservative Party um, right now, um, you know we've we've got to do some some reflecting on uh, when we when we actually think we're going to be headed to the polls again, um, and and remind. Uh, remind ourselves that you know Canadians have have lasting lasting memories, um, and and these types of uh, these types of divisions um, are are not particularly helpful if um, we're gonna if we're you know gonna end up in 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 the same place and it just it, it just sort of undermines the party in that sense. So so I think um, you know conservatives are are right to be um, to be sort of asking these questions now um, and and trying to deal with the question around around the leadership uh, immediately so that uh, regardless of what the what the answer is in that um, you know we we move on either uh, Aaron is the leader um, and has and has the support of the caucus of the uh, of the party, um, or uh, we start a process uh, immediately to uh, to to change that. 
Um, well, but, well, how but, do you how do you circumvent that? I mean, and and to my your point though, Andrew, there's there's going to be dissenting voices. We get that, and you know, I know when when you're winning, everybody's happy. Even if you know you aren't crazy about the the platform or something, you still won and you hold power. That's okay. We'll deal with the other stuff. Uh, as you say, the perspective changes considerably if you don't win, especially in anticipation of that. You're right. The first three weeks of the campaign, I mean, they were probably practicing, you know, and, and planning a victory parade in front of the parliament buildings. It looked as if Mr. O'Toole was going to win that, and it didn't happen. But here we are now. Uh, Bert Chen, I'm sure, is not the only uh, member of the executive that's ticked off about the result, maybe even ticked off with Mr. O'Toole himself. But this is not the sort of thing that should be public. And they, they seem to be washing their laundry in public. And that's never a good thing for any party, is it? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I will say, um, Mr. You know, Mr. Chen, in this point, um, is the only one that at least has been vocal. Um, yeah. about about his opposition when we're speaking about about the National Council. And I'd say that's one of Aaron's uh, biggest saving graces right now, which is if you look at uh, the caucus, if you look at um, at the uh, former campaign team, if you look at uh, the members of 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 the party and and prominent um, sort of voices, you're not seeing um, the same level. Uh, of of sort of dissent as as one one saw for example right after uh, you know the Andrew Shear loss and so I think a lot of people are taking a moment to sort of reflect on how that played out. Uh, leaderships are 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 an interesting beast in the sense that um, you know when you think about a leadership um, you're naturally inclined to envision the party in the best formation that you can possibly imagine it, right? Sure, because yeah. the, the opportunity is is sort of limitless. Unfortunately, uh, every every leadership, every party has different rules and regulations in terms of who should or should not enter. Uh, so a lot of Tories, I think, are thinking about, you know, the fact that last time we were a bit quick on the, you know, on the heels of, of the election of saying, okay, it can't be Andrew Scheer. There were talks and conversations about, you know, Ronna Ambrose running for leader, Lisa Raitt running for leader, uh, James Moore running for leader, Jason Kenney running for leader, Peter McKay running for... Uh, eventually, there, there really ended up being only, um, you know, two or three serious contenders uh, for leader, and many people in the party uh, were not thrilled with any of the choices, quite frankly. Um, so, so I think that's still fresh in a lot of people's memories, and the biggest thing uh, right now, the biggest advantage that Mr. O'Toole has is, is again, the fact that, um, you know, out of all the voices in the Conservative Party, the, the only real one of, of open dissent seems to be that of, you know, a, a second term national councillor uh, who's, you know, a, a younger guy from from Ontario that doesn't that doesn't necessarily have the uh, the the depth in terms of uh, you know network um, and and connections that are that are sort of required to to push a leader out of a position like this. Well, and and whether or not you should be doing that in public, I think I'm sure he's had those conversations with other members of the executive. Say, you know what you're doing here, uh, but but then you've got on the other side. Uh, you're right. There have been that many voices from caucus. Uh, but, the, you know, when, when you look at some of the actions of Marilyn Gladue over the last little while, especially her interview with Evan Solomon over the weekend on CTV, uh, and, and her status, and I understand we even within the party, there's going to be dissenting voices about the vaccination program and mandatory vaccinations. Uh, Mr. O'Toole is walking a pretty fine line there, though, Andrew, trying to placate that 
group and at the same time uh, get his own demands about there. But yeah, he's trying to encourage everybody to get vaccinated. But when you get somebody like uh, like uh, MP Glado, who actually says, well, we're forming our own, uh, you know, civil liberties caucus within the Conservative Party. It kind of sounds like, yeah, we don't have faith in the leader to do this. So we're going to set our own little splinter group here. That's not good for party unity. I mean, she's not saying I don't like Aaron O'Toole. I'm sure she does. But by her actions, she seems to be undercutting his authority. Yeah, that's right. And 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 the problem, the biggest problem for for Aaron O'Toole is how to deal with these, uh, how to deal with this entire situation, right? So first of all, I'd say um, Aaron has been exceptionally effective over the year, the last year, um, at being able to insulate himself from controversial opinions uh, that are often held by members of the caucus. Uh, you think about the way he did this on the carbon tax. You think about the way he's done this on issues of LGBTQ uh, rights and, you know, and, and even the issue of, uh, like, the, the issues around the question of, of life. Um, he has always held, he has often held a position um, that, that not necessarily everyone in the rest of the party and the rest of the caucus is in complete alignment with, but he's been effective um, to be able to say, I am the leader of the party, this is my position, and, you know, this is the position either I expect members of caucus to hold or, or, or at least those, you know, within uh within his senior leadership team and so i but think there's something that's what you're andrew saying. there's something different about this one and, and I, 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 to put this in perspective uh when you've got a former leader and a former prime minister uh, i.e brian mulroney saying that's not how you do this real leadership is if you've got somebody who's really undercutting your authority you boot them out uh and and he's done that mulroney did that on a couple of occasions uh the, the former prime minister stephen harper i mean whether you liked him or didn't like him or whether you agreed with him or didn't like him you knew who the boss was uh, yeah. You know, I, I remember having a conversation with Garth Turner. I know you remember Garth. He was a, a financial advisor who actually ran for the Conservatives and got elected when, when Harper became prime minister and started to talk about against some of the Harper policies. And as he wrote in his biography, he says, within about two weeks, I found my office was down in the basement beside the boiler room and all my yeah. staff was gone. I mean, that's sending a message. I'm in charge. If you're not going to be with me, then there are consequences. People are looking to O'Toole right now and saying, what are you going to do about this? And well, uh, he's vacillating. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, full disclosure, I was Lisa Raitt's campaign manager when she ran against him in 2008. And I can tell you the people in the riding um, didn't actually like that mavericky, um, that mavericky image. You know, I think they look to, to politicians, to the leadership and say, we want, we want in large part people who are not only going to stand up for us, but who are also going to be team players and know how to get things done and know how to deliver results. So in, you know, in that, in that little anecdote, um, I, I agree that um, there, there is, uh, there's, there's probably less repercussions um, for, for these sort of critics, um, if you will, uh, locally, than, uh, than O'Toole's giving them credit for. The problem here um, is that um, the, these people were not only just elected, <laughs> as uh, as conservative MPs. So so to be to be sort of kicking them out uh, mere weeks after after they were they were just elected is, you know, a little bit of a a little bit of a challenge. The other thing is that um, the Conservative Caucus, of course, has elected um, to invoke the Reform Act, um, which which makes um, getting rid of individual caucus members and dissenting voices uh, a, a lot more challenging. It's no longer 
uh, at the discretion of the leader. It has to be something orchestrated through caucus. And, and, and to the point on, on this group that's forming, you know, no one knows exactly who's in it and how many, how many people are in it. Some of the estimates are sort of 15 to 30 members of caucus and the Senate. So, uh, you know, let's, let's assume that that's a half and half split. Um, then that's 15 members of caucus that you're dealing with, um, who are, you know, who are making this an issue of, uh, not vaccines, but civil liberties. And, and if you're going to say, we're going to kick out 15 members of the Conservative Party caucus because they are standing up for people's civil liberties, um, then that's, I mean, that would be a significant challenge for O'Toole. Well, I get that, and I understand that. But, you know, when you saw the headline in the National Post the other day, like, who's the captain of the conservative ship right now? And that that's a, a, a right-leaning newspaper. When somebody like that is asking that question, it, it draws into the question about O'Toole's leadership capabilities, uh, which is not the sort of thing he should be battling right now. No, it's, it's, not, it's not ideal for him to have those questions, but that's why you're seeing him start to pull on some of the levers that he does have to apply some pressure uh, and some discipline to uh, to caucus on this. This morning, of course, uh, he announced the critic role um, for the caucus and has uh, at least appeared at first glance to be excluded anyone um, who has any level of uh, sort of controversial opinion uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to vaccines or who is who has spread some kind of misinformation, um, you know, a, a, a mere hour after that announcement, which excluded uh, MP Marilyn Gladue, uh, she apologized uh, for yeah. um, for misleading Canadians um, issuing issuing that tweet uh, less than an hour ago, I think. Um, so so look, there's you know, there are some ways um, that the conservative leader can still within um, within the confines that that the party sort of put on put on the leader uh, with the Reform Act. Um, but there are ways to be able to um, send very clear signals um, to the people of uh, of Canada um, that that, you know, he's not going to put up with this uh, at the, at the leadership level. And while we are, uh, you know, while the Conservatives are a party of uh, democratic voices, it's a diverse coalition that, uh, that will always have time and respect for um, differing uh, views, opinions, um, that his, his uh, stance on something uh, like vaccines, on something like vaccine mandates, is, is made crystal clear through uh, through his actions, and that's not just standing up at the beginning of each news conference, as he always does, saying we encourage people to get vaccinated. But that comes through uh, the the leadership um, levers that are that are available to him at this time. And the tools. Well, it's the politics within politics, and it's it's fascinating always to watch it play out. Andrew, great to get your perspective. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great week. You too. Andrew Brander, of course, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategies. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.